0: Hey, everybody, thank you so much for watching and listening. This is a special joint simulcast of Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, brought to you by our friends at speakermatch.com. Special thanks to Kathy Teets and all the gang at Headline Books for letting me speak to a broadcasting legend. And legend is not just code for old guy. This is a guy (laughs) who's really done a lot in his decades in the broadcasting business that we can all be somewhat envious of. Lou Dobbins has served for many years as one of the leading country music advocates in the Appalachian Mountain region. He's uh, been on many, many radio stations, many TV stations, and the awards have come back to him uh, in a large way. He's Both a member of the West Virginia Broadcasters Hall of Fame and the West Virginia Country Music Hall of Fame. And if there was a big name country artist from the 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s, chances are they have shared a microphone with Lou Dobbins. And that's what I get to do today as well. Lou, thank you so much for being on the program.
1: Bert, thank you so much. It is really an honor and a privilege to be with you and your audience. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. And I know during the course of whatever time we have, we will be educational and entertaining.
0: And we're gonna lean on the entertainment piece. I'll tell you, I I actually have, and I will hold it up here right now, a Mm -hmm. copy Behind the Microphone. uh, This is one of those books that you want to put on your coffee table if you're a music fan, uh, especially country music fan. For somebody like you that's been at it since the early 1960s, you've lived an amazing life. And I want to start, if we can, back at the beginning. Um, As a kid, were you in a a musical household? Talk to me about being Little Lou Dobbins and, and what that was
1: like. There wasn't, Burke, a lot of music in my home. My uncle, now he played guitar, he played at square dances. But other than that, there wasn't that much music in my home. The music that was made in my home was with me and a transistor radio blaring up to about 110 degrees. But what I would do late at night, under the covers of my bed, I had an urban transistor radio in my left hand, flashlight in my right hand, and I would be up for all hours of the morning. And I seen New York City, I could see Chicago, I could see Nashville, I could see all these locations. And I said to myself, I've got to do that. I've got to be the guy behind the mic. So it was a dream that started listening to these overnight radio personalities. So as soon as I graduated from high school, I, uh, I got into the wild and wonderful
0: business, of show business. And back in those days, those huge uh, clear channel radio stations, as you said, you could hear them all over the country, uh, and, and those legendary disc jockeys, you know, the Wolfman Jacks of the world, Haas uh, uh, Allen down in Nashville, and, 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 you know, all the guys from WLS in Chicago, you came of age in, in the 1960s, and, and I wonder if, as a kid of the 1960s coming up, um, were you uh, into to early rock and roll as much as you were country, or at what point did the country music be your guiding voice,
1: Burke. I tell you, I uh, when I was growing up, there there was two kinds of fans. There was the rock fan, there was the country fan. With right. me, I was a fan of both both musics. I always had an open mind. It was always good or it was bad, and I got teased a lot for that because many of my friends were listening to rock and roll and thought country was too hillbillyish, didn't want any part of it. But I grew up predominantly on on rock and roll and country together, and as time went on, country got me more involved than what rock and roll did, even though I did start at a rock and roll radio station, but uh, I I got out of that field of music, not to say that I didn't like it, I still like it today, if it's good, it's good, if it's bad, it's bad, but country had more of a a personality to it. Uh, The country singers were more down to earth, uh, people you could exchange comments and views with, I fell in love with not only the music, but the entertainers. I, I always wanted to know more about that person on the turntable that was rolling around. The music was great, but what's that person like? I thought my audience would like it, and they and they liked it. They responded, so I started doing interviews along with the music. So country, it was just something that it evolved into that that I thought that my life's calling should be that, that profession.
0: You want to learn more about Lou and his incredible career and, and the dozens, hundreds of Famous entertainers who's interviewed pick up a copy of Behind the Microphone at headlinebooks.com, amazon.com, or wherever books are sold. Let's go back to your very, very first radio show. And, and I want you to, to sort of paint that picture for us. How old were you the first time you were on the air? And do you remember where you were? Were you nervous? Did you have butterflies? Were you excited? Tell me about that very first radio show.
1: Well, I, I tell you, the, the first job in the business and then I'll get to the radio was in TV. I couldn't find a job in radio anywhere. I didn't have experience. And the, the old managers and the old veterans said, you've got to have experience. So I got with these local broadcasters and we had many very good broadcasters. And they taught me and I listened. I'd record. They'd listen to what I had to say. And I, I heard of an opening at WDTV Channel 5 for a live booth announcer. Now, back then, Burke, they didn't use tape. Uh, videotape was very sparingly used. Commercials were on slides, a readover. All the commercials were in black and white film, and they were needing a live booth announcer. So that was the first job I took. You got it right the first time, or you didn't get it right, but you kept on plunging food. Whatever it turned out, it turned out. But I did that for about six months. And uh, then I entered into radio and it was a rock and roll radio station. And I loved the cities for rock and roll. It was music that said something it meant something, uh, not like today. And, uh, I wasn't, no, I wasn't nervous at all. It was something that I had trained for all my life under the covers of a bed and, uh, an Auburn radio, and, uh, a flashlight. And I would record myself over and over and over imitating these guys. And I would read scripts. And I'd let other guys hear it, and they would, they would, uh, they would uh, school me on it. But uh, the so that, radio
0: station you said that was right out of high school, so you're seventeen, eighteen years old. I'm
1: seventeen years old, and seventeen years old was the first job, of Channel Five. I was eighteen when I went to work for uh, for a R, a thousand watt uh, AM, first radio station in the market to go all rock and roll.
0: And 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 yeah. you mentioned the term booth announcer, so that's something that that doesn't really exist today. What would a booth announcer at a TV station do?
1: Can you give me an example? Booth announcer, anything that pertains to words on the television stations, commercials, PSAs, you read live and you were timed. If it was a 30 second PSA, public service announcement, you read for 30 seconds. They didn't see you, they just saw what was on the TV. And on the left hand of, of, of the screen here was the first job at WDTV channel five with that big, uh, big message board in front of me. But you announced everything, Brooke, if it was, uh, if it was commercials, uh, PSAs, anything that involved words you did, you did it live. And it was live as can be. And there were some pretty ticklish moments <laughs> live as can be <laughs> what, what year was that, what year did you graduate from high school and take the job graduated from 60, that was 66, 66. I worked uh, for the for the uh, TV station at the first, then went on to work the rock and roll, and that was the real rock and roll back then. I was playing uh, people like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and uh, the Motown artists. Uh, there was the Shorelles, Diana the Ross, the all, 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 all this music. All this music made sense, and that's that's what I that I worked. And then out of that, then I branched on into country music. After that,
0: now I'm just curious if you can remember any of the television shows that you might have introduced on WDTV, would you have said tonight at eight on Gilligan's Island or whatever the show might be? That's
1: that's exactly what I do tonight at seven o'clock on WDTV channel five, it's Gilligan's Island, eight o'clock, blah, 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 don't miss it. And all the time that I'm doing this work, I'm looking at the clock, I got 15, 20 or 30 seconds to get that in. I got a director and we're on headsets and he's timing it down. But uh, they would be promos like uh, tonight, uh, stay tuned to channel five. We have all these various shows that you want to watch. And I promote those shows live. There was no tape. It was all lives that happened.
0: You played records. And and uh, Lou, I've got a 15 year old son who uh, only a year ago, when when I uh, broke out the record player, he was fascinated by records. He didn't know how they worked. He literally mm-hmm. said, Dad, what do I do with this? and and how does it work? But you must have played and probably own thousands of vinyl records.
1: I have a collection of vinyl records. I, in fact, I had to uh, have a, a building built onto the attachment of my house to get all my music in there. Of course, back in the day when I first started, you had the eight track recordings, which wasn't recorded for on air, but you had the vinyls, you had the 45 RPM, the 33 and a third RPM. And that's the way you played your music. You played them through a, a control board we would cue up the record, and that means you take the, the record and cue it to the first sound that comes out, so when you announce, here is George Jones, as soon as the Jones ends, boom, the record comes on, and uh, it was the 33 and the 45s for, I kept hanging on to them until 1989, I was still playing them, and they got to the point, point. And, and I was very leery of the CDs, it was something new, Burke, and I really... I didn't know about it. I knew my vinyl, but I didn't know the CD, but I had to go to the CD because the record company said, Lou, if you don't start playing CDs, you're not going to get any music. So I had to go to the CDs and now after all these years, and even looking back now, it was the CD, just a great, great way to create music. You know, much easier to to control, much easier to handle, and the quality is superb. So CD's- Our guest,
0: and and we're talking about an incredible career in broadcasting, spanning almost five decades now. He's a uh, Country Music Hall of Famer and also a member of the West Virginia Broadcasters Hall of Fame. The book is in the microphone. And one of the things I thought was, was fascinating about your story is that I read through it. You not only played these songs on the radio and continue to after all these years, you also were a songwriter.
1: I wrote songs. Now, that, there's a picture on the screen now. That was my promo picture. Now, wasn't I a handsome young lad?
0: Look at that. that Look Her- at here.
1: That, that hairdo is just absolutely fantastic. I wear the hat, and as long as they create hats, I'll be all right. Huh. But uh, I, I was I was writing songs. I was a factory. I was under a, a writer's contract in uh, in Nashville. Nothing ever happened out of it. But I got into the studio one time with a Farron Young song, and another time with Jerry Lee Lewis. But they didn't didn't record them. But the, but I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And that picture is uh is me when i was writing and performing we had so many country music acts that came through clarksburg west virginia my base home 99.9 percent of the time i would go out and, and try to warm up the crowd with two or three numbers so that's the promo picture there and i still write some in fact in my book uh burke there's a number of songs that i have written the lyrics are in in the uh, in the book and and some of them i think uh people will find them very interesting songs that never got recorded. Well, they were recorded by me, and that's. But but there's some good lyrics in those books. In fact, I think in the book a lot of those songs would make good poems. You um uh,
0: you just mentioned your hometown, Clarksburg, West Virginia. You and I have West Virginia in common. That's my my home state, and and you've made a long uh, career there. And that's one of the the hubs of country music. And I, I wonder how much you think that Appalachian influence that you grew up around influence your, your love of that music, that music that is just such a vital, integral part of people's existence back there.
1: Oh, it it was. And there wasn't, like I said, a lot of music in my house, but there was music everywhere. There were music festivals, country music events, uh, locally in, 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 I was really raised in Western Weston, West and, West, and you know, up on McCann's run, which Clarksburg is my base home now, but as a small youngster, it was up on McCann's run. And there were two radio stations that had block programming. One minute, you might hear a uh, uh, middle of the road music, which would be Annette King Conner and Andy Williams. Next minute you might hear a rock and roll, the next minute you hear a country, but they had sections of programming for country and it was real country music. And those two radio stations I listened to, I knew exactly when they came on, and I would click because they came on at different times, I would cling to those songs and all the songs around me. And it was, it was country music. It was music that said something, music that meant something. So, yeah, the influence was all around me, and you know, it was just something that uh, it just took a hold of me and to this day hasn't let go, and I'm glad it hasn't.
0: I wonder if, uh, if we could ask you uh, about some of these, these many entertainers that, that you have interviewed down through the years. Yes. And, and the list is so long, we'll never get through all of them. But I want to ask you about some specific folks that I know you've spoken with because they're real legends mm-hmm. in country music. And I'd like to start with with Glenn Campbell, a guy who was uh, you know a, a very underrated guitarist. He was actually a touring guitarist for the Beach Boys, incredible singer, songwriter. What do you remember about your conversation with Glenn Campbell?
1: Well, Glenn Campbell, i have been trying to get an interview with Glenn Campbell for several months. This is when I worked at a full-time country music radio station, WPDX, the first station to go all country in this market. And I'd kept trying and trying, and you know, I sort of was getting the run around. You can do it here, but he can't do it then. But but one day, I got a hold of his manager, and I said, I'd like to do this, this interview with Glenn. And he got with Glenn, and Glenn consented to do the interview. And at the time, Glenn was performing in, uh, in Las Vegas. So I called Las Vegas, which was uh, 9 o'clock our time, and uh, we did a phone interview from, from Las Vegas. He just got through playing tennis with a longtime comedian, talk show host, Joey Bishop. So he came come up and on the phone and we talked. And I, I remember specifically talking about true grit and how he and John Wayne had developed such a great friendship and how he taught him how to act. He never gave him a rough time. If he messed up, John would put his arm around him and say, hey, that's all right, son. It's all part of the process. We'll just do it again. And also, Glenn had a very popular TV program, the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour.
0: That's and right. I asked
1: him about that. I said, did you enjoy doing that show? Because, you know, I've heard artists tell me that it really gets to be a grind. And he said he enjoyed the first two years. But the last year, which was the final year of the show, they canceled him. He did not enjoy it because they fired all the writing staff, brought in new writers. And they were writing a show, not around Glenn Campbell, but they were writing a show. The writers before wrote the show around Glen. And now they were they were not writing writing, writing directly to Glenn and putting him in as a star of the show. So he didn't, he didn't care for that at all. And at the time he was uh, putting together a new stage show, which involved bagpipes. And, uh, he did a good time Glenn Campbell imitation for me. Hi, this is Glenn Campbell. And, uh, he was, he was just a great guy. Saddened so much to see what happened to him. He was brilliant. They're, they're, they're In the category of guitar players, there's many great ones, Burke, but Glenn Campbell would be right there on the top rung of the ladder. He was an incredible guitarist. He started out, as you know, as a session guitar player with a group they called the crew. And they did all the recordings out on the West coast of all the stars, including the Beach Boys. And what they would do, they would come into the studio and without their instruments and Glenn Campbell and the crew, would do all the instrumentals for the song. And after the recording session, then the band or individual would have to learn that song because their instruments were not permitted in the studio. And Glenn and Leon Russell and people like that were a big part of the crew. And uh, they, they, uh, they played the music for the stars. And of course, Glenn was so talented. It was just a matter of time before he had his own show and his own recording contract. And he was just a great guy. I remember him well.
0: What about George Jones? George Jones, one of those artists that, uh, boy, he could, uh, in West Virginia, certainly can walk on water. I actually saw him perform there in the state several times. Uh, A guy who could do no wrong, had his own personal demons, but, boy, could sing a song like no other.
1: George Jones would rate right at the top of the scale as one of the great country music singers of all time. And also, another part that's overshadowed, George also was a fine writer. He he wrote uh, wrote several hit records back in the early days. Uh, why baby why? Which was the number one record. George wrote that song, and like you said many times, the demons that he had, and he certainly had them, overshadowed his the singing. But when he was straight, there was there was not a better country singer. Nice guy, quiet guy. Uh, he was just uh, what do you what more can you say about George? He was a a living legend, and he'll go down in the same pathways of a, of a Hank Williams in, in years to come. When we look back at the genre of country and our grandkids look back, George would be right there at the top of the list. And uh, even though sometimes his annex overshadowed his, his music, he was, uh, he was fantastic, fantastic.
0: What about George's uh, wife for a time who was a country legend in her own right, Tammy Wynette? What do you recall about your conversations with her?
1: Tammy Wynette, uh, she was a, a plain spoken woman. Uh, George was kind of quiet, he didn't have a lot to say, unless he had a few belts within him, but now, uh, uh, Tammy was a real pistol, I remember one show we did in Clarksburg, West Virginia, George would go out and do his part, then he'd bring out Tammy to do some duets. So Tammy had this brand new pair of shoes she just bought for the show and they were rich. She had a beautiful red dress on and these shoes, she went out performing. and she came back, these feet, these shoes were killing her feet. She pulled off those shoes and slammed them up against the wall, said a few short words and told her assistant to go out and get her a new pair of shoes because she couldn't stand those shoes that were killing her feet. So we went out and got, got new show, shoes and she went on out and, and did the show. I did an interview with Tammy about George. It's in the book. And, uh, it's, it's, it's a story of two sides. George had his side. Tammy had her side, but, uh, uh the life of Tammy Wynette was just absolutely. It, it was a dream of, of stardom and greatness. And also was, a, was a, was a very tragic life. Uh, T- or, uh, Tammy got hooked on pain pills. She was an addict. Uh, she was taking pain pills as her daughter, Georgette told me up to the day she died but she never let that overshadow her talent. Uh, her second marriage uh, was, was a disaster and uh, she was often uh, often abused, but she still was Tammy Wynette, and, and uh, was always one of the true queens of country music. And there's, there's a whole chapter about George and Tammy, the first time I met them and then later on in life when, when, I, when I met them separately.
0: Conway Twitty. Now, there's a, a voice that, uh, if you were a country music fan, certainly, in the 1970s,, 19, early 1980s, you couldn't escape Conway Twitty on your country music radio station.
1: The guy was: Conway, Con, Conway Twitty real name, Harold Jenkins. He got his name from two cities in two states: Conway, Arkansas, Twitty, Texas. came out to Conway Twitty. I did several shows with Conway. I remember one night it was late and we're riding in between shows. And of course, we're talking music. And I asked Conway, I said, what, what's what been the biggest record? And the biggest record at that time, it's always, or uh, it's only make-believe, which was a big crossover country here. And I asked Conway, "What what is your success formula? And he said, Lou, when I write a song, when I record, I always take the woman and I put her on a pedestal. She is the queen, crown and all. And I take that boyfriend or that husband and I kick him in the dirt and I stomp him. I put that woman first. Therefore she brings her husband or her boyfriends to buy my records and to see my shows. (laughs) Success formula. formula, You put the woman on top and everything will be fine. Conway Quiddy never missed a show Burke in his life. He never missed a concert because of illness. One night I worked a show with him. He had the flu so bad that his manager didn't want him to do the show. Said, Conway, you can't do that. You're too ill. Conway said, I paid to do it and I'll do it. He walked out on stage and as soon as the spotlight hit Conway, it was like nothing was wrong with him. He put on a fantastic show. After the show, he collapsed. They tried to get him to the bus, but he wouldn't go to the bus. He wanted to sign autographs in the condition that he was in. Now, this is a man that didn't have to do that. He could have went right to the bus and said, see you later and love your neighbor. But uh, he wanted to sign the autographs, and this building held about 3,000, and it was full, and he stayed there till every autograph was signed. And that told me so much about Conway Twitty and the love for his fans. He, uh, he was just a gentleman on and off stage. Uh, I miss him a lot. I, I was shocked when he, when he died at such a young age. And, but uh, there's a lot in the book more than that about, about Conway and, and our friendship.
0: The book is from my friend Lou Dobbins, and he's a, a Hall of Fame broadcaster. You'll love it if you're a country music fan. Behind the microphone talks about just all of these different artists that, that Lou has interviewed down through the years and uh, highly recommend it. It's available from headlinebooks.com and, of course, uh, amazon.com, BarnesNoble.com, wherever you, you can find books. Uh, I want to ask you this because I just had this conversation with an attorney friend a couple of weeks ago who grew up back there in West Virginia. And he said, you know, when I was a kid growing up in small town, West Virginia, he said, I hadn't thought about it for a long time, but but something you just said, Lou, reminded me of that. He said, the biggest country artist in the country would come to my small town. I saw some of the most famous entertainers ever come to, uh, you know, Golly Bridge, West Virginia, or the Armory in Beckley, West Virginia. That's something that, that was unique to country music artists in the, the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. You didn't have to go to a major metropolitan area to see them, and and I wonder if that was your experience there in Clarksburg, which is by no means a huge city, but it seems like the biggest of the big made it to your town.
1: Back in the day, Burke, these country artists, now this is back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, up into the 80s when I was really, really involved with country music. They were so sincere. They loved their fans so much, and they accommodated the fans and the promoter with with their ticket price. Not like the rock and rollers who were charging an arm and a leg for a ticket, and when the show was over, they were gone. But yeah, you would see some of the biggest entertainers in the world right here in Clarksburg. I mean, it it housed some of the the biggest ones. Charlie Daniels, Conway Twitty, Loretta Lynn, George and Tammy, Farron Young. I mean, it went on forever with the biggest names in country. Because they formed their price around the community that they were playing. They were sp- playing a small town. They had so much love for their fans that they accommodated their fans with a ticket price that they could afford. And that's, that's the way it was. And I experienced that all oh, for, for many years, especially in the 60s and 70s. Farron Young, you
0: would uh, mention to me right before we went on the air, uh, actually uh, ran afoul of the law right there in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Tell us that story.
1: Oh, I, I love Farron Young. Farron Young, he was a dynamite entertainer, great singer of song. But uh, Farron had this wild side where he really liked to drink. And he did not only drink, he he drank heavily. And, during, you know, shows, one, you drink uh, during shows. What's that, Burke? He during shows. Oh, he drank during shows, oh, yeah. in bad shape and go downhill from there. Exactly. Well, this this happened on a Sunday afternoon. It was a two-show event. Farron did the afternoon show, then did the night. And at the time, he had a big hit record titled This Little Girl of Mine. What he would do, he would close his show by going out into the audience and going to a little girl and ask the little girl to come on stage and sing so he could sing the song to her, this little girl of mine, touching song. So the first show went went great. The little girl came up on stage and all the men and the women, they were crying. I mean, it was just so, so touching. I was back at the radio station at the time and they were all just crying and crying. The station manager was at that show and he came back to me, went live on the air and said, ladies and gentlemen, you got to go out tonight and see Farron Young. He's one of the greatest country music entertainers that ever performed. And this radio station is proud to be a sponsor of Farron Young, okay. Second show comes, comes to the end of the show. Time for this little girl of mine. Baron goes out into the audience. this is after the station manager said, you've got to see this guy. He's a a family man. Oh, it's a family show. He goes, this little girl, she didn't want to go. She spit on him, pulled the microphone out of his hand, and he hauled off and spanked her about three times, threw her down into the chair. Well, (laughs) true story. I was there for that second show. And the crowd starts coming to the stage. I mean, there's a near riot going to break out. And Farron threw the microphone down and said he didn't want to do this blankly blankly show anyway. So he stormed off, left his band members to fend for him. He jumped on his bus and got the heck out of Dodge. But a few miles out of town, he was arrested for assault. And uh, he paid a fine that night. And then there was the civil proceedings. The family sued him. And they, they settled out of court, whatever that amount was. It was an amount that wasn't disclosed. But that was a side of Farron, and that wasn't the first time that things like that has happened. It happened. Gene Shepherd refused to work with Farron because of the fact they did a show one night and he got in a fight. It was an FOP show, got in a fight with the Turn Order Police uh, law enforcement officers, and they rolled out on the stage doing her performance. And she said that was the last show ever worked with Farron. Love Farron. Farron was Farron, but he, uh, he had that, that wild streak, and that episode in Clarksburg was one of his really, really bad wild streaks.
0: We're talking about country music and just the, the list goes on and on of the artists that, that you spent time with and have, have entertained with, the, uh, from George Strait to, uh, actually, I'm just looking at some of the pictures of the book there, Marty Stewart, and I could just go on and on and on and, and we never get to the end of the list. There's Lyle Lovett. I I wonder if if there is an artist that that is sort of the top of the list for you when it comes to being a genuinely nice guy or nice lady. Somebody look back on and go, you know what, even if this person were not a famous entertainer, I'd love to just spend time with that person. They were just good people.
1: There's one that immediately comes to mind. I don't have to close my eyes to think about it. And that would have to be Charlie Daniels. Charlie and I did so many interviews together. We did so many shows together. I'm still trying to come to terms with his death. But he was one of those guys. Charlie always knew where his bread was buttered. If you wanted a radio interview with Charlie, he made the time to do that radio interview because we always promoted his latest project at the time. And he was so sincere. He was the same on stage as what he was off stage. He was a friend. He was a guy you'd go out to dinner with and, and, and have a nice evening. I tell you, the first time I met Charlie Daniels, this was in the mid-70s, and uh, the radio station I was working at was right down the hill from a Sheraton Hotel, and we had been promoting for a month Charlie Daniels coming to town. So I just happened to be back in the back room of the radio station, looked out, and and, in the entrance way of the hotel, there's two big buses says Charlie Daniels band. And boy, well, here's my chance. I'm gonna go up and meet Charlie. Get him down to the station do an interview with Charlie. It's about 74, 75. So I went to the hotel and I hear this large disturbance. I mean, words are flying, tempers are hot. And I go to the desk clerk and I said, what's going on here? He said, they denied Charlie Daniels and the band access to the dining room. And I said, why? Instead, they are, they are not in proper attire. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, Now, with Charlie Daniels and his boys, that's the way they dressed. That's the way they lived they, and and that's just the way it was, but they weren't going to let them eat in that dining room. So they had to order meals to their room. Now, here's the kicker. Charlie's coming out and he's screaming. And I knew it was the the worst time in the world to introduce myself to Charlie Daniels and the mood he was in. But I jumped right in the middle of the fracas and introduced myself. And he stopped. He said, you work in country radio? I said, yeah, just down the street. You can see our station from here. love for you to come down and have an interview. He said, well, I'll I'll try to get down there. He said, What do you think about this place? Not letting me in to eat. And I said, Well, I think they're all crazy. I there's something wrong with them, Charlie. And please take my apology. I know you you're the way you are, and and it's terrible but this happened. He said, Well, it wasn't the first time. So anyway, I went back to the radio station, told him Charlie was coming down. They all laughed, Charlie Daniels won't be down here. He just told you that to get rid of you. Uh, About an hour later, Charlie came through the door. We sat down and did our first interview. We talked about the the days preceding his stardom days and really in 74, 75, he was a star, but he wasn't that big star yet. Right. We talked about his musician days where he played guitar for Bob Dylan, Marty Robbins and all the session work. And, oh, he was just a wonderful, wonderful man. You talk to anybody that had ever been around Charlie Daniels in their life. And they'll tell you that whether they had any verbal conversations with him or just, he signed an autograph for him. He was, and what a what a talented individual, Burr. This man could play oh he he played the guitar so well and the fiddle and a personality that wouldn't quit. He could he was one of the best storytellers that, that I've ever been around in my life. Charlie Daniels, one of the great ones. And he he was right up there as one of my
0: favorites. I hated to lose him this year. Lou Dobbins is our guest today. The book is behind the microphone. It's a big coffee table sized book that that if you're a country music fan, you'll certainly enjoy. Uh, all the many, many stories of the different country music legends and icons that Lou spent time with. You know, Lou, I, I wanted to ask you. You, you uh, of course, primarily to me, known as as this legendary radio guy for all these interviews that you've done. But you had something of a dual career for many years. You did television and radio, and I wonder if if one of those two mediums was was more fun, more interesting than the other, or did you enjoy
1: them both? Scott, I liked. TV. I really did like TV, but I loved radio. And there's a big difference between like and and love. In TV, you are so restricted on the time element. I was a news director. Started out as a producer, then newsman, then news director. And I would start working on a news broadcast with my crew at seven o'clock in the morning, and we'd work right up to six o'clock the evening news. And all day of working, all the filming all the interviews when it was all said and done, we had approximately every evening, 18 minutes of on air time. Now that included not only news that included sports and that included weather. Right. So you work all day for that. And then you turn around, and you do it again at 11 o'clock. I liked it, but I couldn't be myself. I had to be the, as you see there, a suit and tie guy. That wasn't me, but I, I played the part. But uh, then I got into radio and I said, man, this is, this is, I can do a three and four hour radio show, be myself, talk to my fans, play, play the music that I love, country music. And uh, I thought I could be such, in radio, be more creative than on TV. And radio can be a lot more difficult than creativity in TV because in radio, you've got to paint the picture. You've got to have the person looking at whatever you're talking about. TV, it's a lot of it's, it's mostly visual, and you don't need all that extra emphasis because you're seeing what you're seeing. But uh, radio, I just I just loved it, I stayed with it all these years, and I still love it today. But Burke, it's it's difficult for me to listen to, uh, to to the music of today. It's just so difficult. It's I'm old school. That's just the way I am, and it's just there's no personality there. It's just I I. And the music I'm not really into some of it I like most of it I don't, but it's not like the old time on air Lou Dobbins on the radio you call me up, you need to hear something I'll play it for you your wish is my command, you know things like that you don't hear it anymore and it, that's disappointing to me it really 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 is in fact i couldn't I'd have a if i well, I couldn't work today's radio oh no I, I'd, I'd be fired the first day i i'd, I'd <laughs> i throw the rule book out the window and i be myself.
0: He's a rebel, rebel. Lou Dobbins is a rebel with a book and a microphone. Yeah. Uh, and the book is behind the microphone, by the way, from our friends at Headline Books. It's available now at headlinebooks.com. You can also, of course, go to Amazon at barnesandnoble.com and pick it up and lose our guest today. on um, Zoom into books and our, our podcast, the Big Time Talker podcast. Um, I see a picture uh, in the book of you and Ray Stevens. Now, we had talked a, a lot about... Charlie Daniels just a minute ago was one of the nicest guys in the world. There've been stories for years, and I'm not gonna ask you to, to give up any personal competences, but there've been stories for years about Ray Stevens, who was this very famous country comedian, who like most comedians have the reputation of, of not being real.